Hello, and welcome to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm your host, Antonio Barbera, and if you've been listening to the show for the past few weeks, we just finished up our Leaders Talk series, and we're now back to our regularly scheduled programming of discussing financial topics and giving the best advice to help you make your money decisions. Today on the show, we're going to tackle investing and millennials, a marriage made not quite in heaven. I'm joined in the Washington, D.C. studio by U.S. News senior investing reporter John Devine. John, thanks for coming on to co-host this week. Thanks for having me, Antonio. Always a pleasure. And our guest this week is none other than Douglas Bonaparte. Douglas is a certified financial planner, the president of Bonafide Wealth, New York City's financial advisor for millennials, and the co-author of the book, The Millennial Money Fix, What You Need to Know About Budgeting, Debt, and Finding Financial Freedom. Douglas, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm going to spend time this week on identifying the importance of millennials investing now, examining their various push and pull scenarios, meaning what are common roadblocks or compromises to entering the investing world, and what millennials are actually doing well in finding that financial freedom that Douglas writes about. So let's start with the importance aspect. Millennials today are between roughly 25 to 35 years old with a little give and take in both directions depending on who you ask. And when we often hear about investing early and letting your money grow, this is that ideal time frame when your salary is starting to creep above that, oh, now I can pay for more than just rent, uh, and you still have a lot of time that can be really your friend. I know, Douglas, you write in the Millennial Money Fix about the importance of this time spent investing on an individual level and on a macroeconomic level as well. Yeah. It's a very important time to get a lot of foundational investment and financial concepts in place. And what makes investing one of the more interesting ones isn't that it's the sizzle of personal finance. Let's be honest. It's the most exciting one. Everyone you know, goes crazy for it. Not so much cash flow and budgeting, but investment, that's the one where people really tend to get passionate about. Yet, we want to make sure there's a lot of things that actually take place before we even get to investing, despite it being very important to build wealth and ultimately get yourself to financial freedom and independence. John, you're a millennial, and obviously you've been investing for at least a few years, I'll say. Uh, what was the framework in which you viewed investing, especially starting out, as a necessity, as an opportunity? Uh, I thought of it as an opportunity uh, to begin with. You know, uh, I was recently reminded by my mother that she uh, opened my first brokerage account for me uh, illegally, I guess, before I was 18. <laughs> I don't think it's allowed in some states. Uh, but she put 50 bucks in there, and um, I got really excited and quickly realized that that was not enough to really do anything, and you know, the fees eat away at that. Um, and so, you know, that sort of emphasized. Well, it got me going, and it sort of emphasized as well the importance of saving and investing, um, you know, my own money if I wanted to do that. Um, and but nowadays, apps like Robinhood um, have really changed the game, and you can get in with fifty bucks. I mean, there's you know no limits on uh, no minimum account balance in a lot of those situations, and no trading fees. So I think that's a great thing. We're going to talk about tools a bit later, so I want you to, to okay. hang on to that thought. But uh, I think a lot of young people view retirement as sort of an I'll deal with that later uh, kind of problem. So let's get uh, some things out of the way here. 
not being able to pay for retirement, I think, is a growing issue that is only going to increase uh, as the strain on Social Security gets heavier. I think many people think, oh, well, they'll, they'll solve the Social Security issues and it'll cover me by the time I get to retirement age. Even so, Social Security as it stands is not designed to cover all costs of retirement, only about 40%. And it's very possible that by the time millennials retire, their scheduled Social Security benefits will be cut to some extent. So Douglas, when dealing with younger clients or just in getting the message of financial responsibility out there, how do you emphasize these points? Or by the time that they come to you, are they already aware? So I think it's a mixed bag. I get people who come to me with a lack of foundation and understanding just the essentials despite making great money. They just don't have that knowledge and they want organization. They have a thirst for understanding or they just want to outsource it. And I have clients who are very well disciplined, understand a great deal about personal finance, but are just in a time crunch. They, they are focused on other things that they either enjoy doing or have to do because it puts food on the table and it makes them money. So I see it across the spectrum. By and large, though, as a society, unfortunately, we're not all that financially literate. Like financially illiterate, saying you're financially illiterate, like sounds dirty. Like no, no one wants to be <laughs> called that. But unfortunately, the data suggests that we're not really good at this. And you bring up an interesting point with, you know, lately, I've been talking a lot about how it is almost antiquated, if not disingenuous, when older generations tell younger generations that they should save for retirement. Oh, you should put that away for retirement someday. And I'll tell you why I object to this. Number one, and I'm not trying to do generational finger pointing, but the fact of the matter is we're being told by a generation who hasn't done particularly a good job saving for retirement themselves that we need to save for retirement when in reality, millennials have a very different set of financial circumstances than generations prior to them. We have higher levels of student debt. We haven't really been the benefactor of wage growth. Costs in general, housing and transportation, your number one, number two, are much higher, and I'm pretty sure grandma and grandpa didn't have to wrestle with a data plan for their phone, right? So when you look at all of these factors that make up the millennial financial landscape, it seems to me that it's maybe a little out of touch to say we should be saving for retirement when clearly there's more pressing short-term goals and short-term issues that we need to address. You touched on this obviously elephant in the room of student loan debt. So I, I want to get to a couple of scenarios, a couple of common obstacles to investing that millennials face. Uh, and I'll ask for both of your opinions on solutions uh, to these scenarios. So you have millennial number one, let's get to that one right away. Uh, they have student loan debt or credit card debt or both that takes up all of discretionary money that could go toward investments. Five, 10 years after college or after grad school, they're still paying back student loan debt, and they think that they should knock that out first. So, Douglas, I'll start with you. That, that millennial behind door number one you know, sits down with you with that, with that yeah. initial issue. What can that person do? 
So what they can do is prioritize their goals. I think this is a very easy and quick way to understand what you should attack first without even getting into necessarily the financial mechanics of it. And what I mean by financial mechanics are, is there a greater opportunity elsewhere? If your student loan debt had a particularly low interest rate, three and a half, four percent 4%, and you could invest that money otherwise over the long term at six, seven, maybe even more, well, then you got yourself a nice spread there and you can figure out one's more financially opportunistic than the other. But there's this thing that always shows up and it's emotions and behaviors, <laughs> right? So if you uh, are emotionally attached to your debt, it doesn't matter what the interest rate is, you are going to want to defeat it and pay that down. So what you should strive to do is know thyself, right? Find the balance between what your goals are and the priority of those goals, which I hope would dictate more than anything. And I'll give you a real world example we use in the book and what your emotions are towards uh, things like student loan debt or credit card debt. So in the book, for example, Heather and I, um, we are not shy about the multiple six figures in student loan debt that we have and continue to work on from her law school and my business school. And when we found out that we were going to be starting a family and we would want to leave New York City and escape to the suburbs, all of a sudden, uh, accelerating our student loan debt payments. So we're obviously paying the standard amounts, but to accelerate that, all of a sudden move down a couple notches, as did retirement. And the goal that kind of rose to the top, so to speak, was buying a home. So that was an example of how goals can move around, but ultimately how goal priority dictates where your savings are going to go, whether it's student loan debt, a cash reserve, or saving for retirement. Now, what, what you're seeing almost generationally is what I said earlier, how these financial realities that we face are very different, right? When you add that student loan debt that it's absorbing the ability to save, like you got to make those standard payments unless you're on some kind of income-driven plan. But these are the types of things that are making it more difficult to either save for retirement or tackle longer-term goals. So that's my attitude on student loan debt and how you should view it on a number of angles, ultimately, that balance between your emotions and what makes sense financially and what your goal priorities are. Well, I thought that was beautifully put by uh, Douglas over here. You know, I think that really credit card debt is the, uh, the devil in this scenario because uh, you can get so far behind um, at such an early age. Um, I've fallen into uh, credit card debt myself at a young age um, and, you know, was lucky to have relatives that were, you know, um, could basically refi that for me and then I uh, had to pay them back. But um, it can be really a huge uh, hurdle to achieving your goals. Uh, I think what Douglas said about um, putting those goals in, um, in context uh, is, is really what you should do. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, like he said, life happens and sometimes you just have these expenses that you have to deal with, but the important thing is to be conscious of your spending decisions and, and your investing decisions and make sure that you know what you're doing. Um, sometimes you have to spend money or buy a house or, you know, get a loan to go to school. But, um, as long as you are consciously making those decisions, I think it's fine. I, so I wanted both. to, sorry to cut you off, sure. but I wanted to actually emphasize uh, something that was just said, which is credit card debt is is 
toxic. I know you didn't say toxic. I'm the one saying toxic. And, <laughs> and I agree 100%. I think we reserve a special all eyes on this category. When we're talking credit card debt and often double digit or multiple double digit debt, uh, oh, excuse me, double digit uh, interest rates. So 15, 19, you know, this, these absurd rates uh, on that type of uh, debt, you got to go after that first. It, it, is, it is such an impact positively to pay that back, right? The inverse of being charged 19% is earning 19%. So you show me where you can guarantee yourself 10, 15, 20%. You gotta get rid of the credit card debt. And by the way, that's a call to action to make sure you understand your cash flow and that you become a master of cash flow. If you're accumulating consumer debt, you're moving backwards financially. So your whole focus should be on getting yourself to neutral and then positive so you can start accumulating your wealth and getting yourself closer to the goals that you're setting for yourself. You, you both have, have touched on this idea of looking to buy a house in the future. So that's, I think, a very common, my millennial number two situation that I was going to bring up is the millennial who says, oh, I'm looking to invest, I'm looking to save for the future, but I'm also looking at other goals. I'm looking at family planning, buying a house, buying a car, and that's where that uh, discretionary money is going as opposed to in, toward in the stock market, let's say. Are they fine because that money is being invested in into a property, into a house that hopefully will appreciate and, and solve that investment pro, uh, you know, problem for them? Or do they still need to prioritize and adjust their saving habits and investing habits? So I love this question because I think it further drives home a couple key points. Number one, I would urge everybody not to treat a personal residence, your first home or your primary residence as an investment. Good luck actually calculating your holding period return over the long term with that one. <laughs> you would have to account for all the cash flows, right? Like from maintenance to the roof and HVAC system you had fixed and all that. I would advise you that your home is a utility and a memory factory, right? So it's the roof over your head and a place to handle life's logistics. You think about transportation trains, schools, obviously protection and creating some memories and doing some stuff like that. If you end up selling this down the road and you make some money on it, it's icing on the cake. So let's not view um, home ownership on the first go around as necessarily investing. However, we talked about priorities here again. This is why personal finance is called personal finance. And I would like people to really understand that you should not, you know, listen to your brother, your sister, your mother. These, these are decisions that you are going to make for your life. You know, what do you want for yourself? You got to put some blinders on here. Look away from your Instagram a little bit and realize that you get to choose what's important to you. So for Heather and I, we knew that buying a home would become important because of what we wanted to do. And, and, and guess what? It came at the expense of other goals. That's what priority tells you is what's the pecking order of allocating your savings. And you can't have it all. If, if money wasn't an option, go, go do it all. Go, go buy the vacation home, the primary home. Go do it all. You don't, you don't need to do any of this. But obviously money is an option for most people. So having said that, 
you get to choose how you want to allocate that and you need to be clear about which one of your goals is going to come first. And it's unfortunate that some things are going to be put on the back burner. I would love, would have loved to have maxed out our 401k plans and, you know, accelerated student loan debt payment and take advantage of other investment opportunities that come my way throughout the year. But that just wasn't what was most important to us in our lives. And that's not what we wanted for ourselves right now. We had a goal with a specific timeline that costs a specific amount and we knew it was our number one. And that's how I would encourage anyone to think about any goal that they're trying to achieve. That is a realistic system and a realistic way to approach your goals and make sure you get to them in the time that makes sense and is affordable. Yeah, I mean, I agree with pretty much all they just said. Uh, you have a house and I don't, so I wanted to defer <laughs> to you on that one. Um, no but yeah, you have to know your personal situation and you know, are you thinking about buying a house um, two years from now, five years from now, yeah. 10 years from now? You have to be realistic and look at your um, scenario. And if it's, you know, a little bit further out on the horizon, maybe you can uh, take some greater risks with, you know, whatever nut you have and try to invest um, uh, in the stock market. I mean, if it's 10 years away, you think, right, um, right, right. I would, you know, you might want to invest that money and try to grow it. Um, if it's two years away, though, uh, you know, you're probably going to want to be much more conservative with that. And let's be honest, you're going to have to take out a loan and um, and lever up. And that's just uh, necessary to take on some degree of leverage in your life um, in order to reach a goal like that and um, and to move up financially. But uh, I've always heard don't think of your first house as an investment either. So. I guess I'll go with that. And I have to say, you know, you're spot on. What you did right there is uh, separate when it comes to investment time horizons, what to do more or less with short term versus long term. And I'll, I'll, I'll draw a more uh, significant line in the sand. So this is my own advice. Four years or less on any goal, cash. You know, let's not just be conservative. Let's be super conservative. Let's make sure we're in a position where we can't lose our money. I'll give you a quick story on that. And then when it comes to long-term stuff, so th these are the easy decisions. Four years or less, cash. Seven to 10 years or more, you can put risk on that, right? Now you have to determine how much risk you want to put on that, what kind of investor you are, and, and ultimately what the goal is. But here, here's the story that goes with this. So when Heather and I were saving for our home, this was 2013, 14, 15, and 16, so a four-year time period, right? I knew I was going to be putting that in cash, but let's say... I put that into the S&P 500. Now, we know what the market generally did for the last nine years. It went one way, and that was north. A few years in there, it didn't do that. But ultimately, there were some good, good returns in those years. Well, what would have happened had I, instead of investing in cash and kept it safe to ensure that I had the money to close on the home and take out that mortgage? Well, I guess I would have had a little bit more bucks in my pocket. Maybe I could have closed earlier. Well, I was renting, so at least I would have needed to deal with anyway. So that wouldn't have really helped me all that much um, as far as moving up the time in which we could have bought a house. So, okay, I would have had more cash in my pocket. That's nice, but how much more? You know, a little bit, obviously a penny saved, penny earned, that's all great. But if we look at the flip side, okay, so that, that's an okay situation. That's, that's good. Now, if we look at the flip side, well, well, what if the market had corrected, not even like a 2008 type event, half of that, just, just a regular old 
bear market, right? In regular bear market, 20%, 20% drawdown. So now what am I doing? Honey, we just lost 20% of the money we were saving for our home, okay? Closing isn't in August. It's now in February of the following year. And yeah, we got to deal with that lease that's coming due. If you wanted to see me lose limbs, right? Like, <laughs> like literally lose an arm, a leg, okay? That's, that's what you would have done. So I, I tell you this story just to emphasize that when it comes to short-term goals, four years or less, generally, there's no reward out there in the capital markets that's tasty enough right, that's rewarding enough to outweigh the pain, right, that you would receive if you got it wrong, if it went the other way. So that's a, that's a pretty long story to go through why we choose cash or, or really super conserved investments, typically assured assets and things like that. I mean, th that leads, I think, very well into this sort of third profile that I've created as you touch on risk is this group of millennials, let's call let's use one millennial specifically, who watched their parents lose a lot from the Great Recession. That was right when they were coming out of college, and that was the time when they were going to start to earn and start to save. And so fear can be a major factor uh, to investing large percentages of their hard-earned money into the stock market because they saw it impact their parents uh, when they were old enough to sort of know what was happening. How do you reassure those young investors, or is your reassurance, let's work with cash, let's work with cash instead? Well, you know, that's recency bias, right? So recency bias tells us that the last kind of traumatic event sets the tone for how things are going to operate into the future. And right. it's, a, it's a bias. It's, it's, it's typically not the case. You know, you can equate that to, you know, if you're single and you just you just broke up with a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you know, it's the end of the world, you know, it'll, it'll never work out. You'll never find someone that, and, you know, when you say it like that, it, well, that sounds just, just a little silly. So you have to remember that 2008 created some anchoring, created some recency bias, all these emotional behaviors that typically aren't good for investors who are trying to be disciplined and understand that things work in cycles, that if you participate over the long term and don't, you know, blow yourself up by, by reacting to things, um, you'll, you'll typically participate and be okay. You know, an ongoing joke in our community is, you know, well, well, who, who performs as well as the market or beats, who beats all other investors? It's, it's those who don't look at their statements or log into their account, right? They just, <laughs> they just kind of said, oh, I didn't know that was there. Oh, wow. Look how well it's done. Because again, they didn't, they didn't really react to anything. They let them, let those markets do what they do. Um, so yeah, it's created stigma, even myself as a professional, you know, I tend to be more conservative. I'm 34. I, you know, you'd think I'd be aggressive in, in my investment policies, especially when it comes to other young uh, professionals and older and younger millennials. And the, and the truth is no, um, I, I, I take it two ways. Number one, I, I think it's, you know, shown me how bad things could be. And maybe there's biases in there that, that I deal with and in, in being a little bit more conservative in general. I also know it's going to keep people safe. And, and I'm all for that. I think that's, that's part of my job as a fiduciary. But I also think that it's trained me to, you know, uh, understand where buying opportunities or generational opportunities, uh, opportunities lie. You know, the other attitude I'd have is, well, if 08 happened again, um, with what I know now, and that's the thing, you can't predict these things. You don't know how they're gonna how they're gonna flesh out in the end. But 
I hope young people who who are prepared and have fundamentals and build cash reserves um, know know a buying opportunity or a generational buying opportunity when they see it. And 2008 was that. Like if I could do it all over again, I'm sure everyone would have, you know, borrowed as much cash as possible, found, you know, hawked Mm -hmm. their possessions on eBay just to go buy themselves. You know, uh, (laughs) you do well in the S&P 500, let alone specific, you know, companies, whether that was uh, your FANG stocks or otherwise, by the way, not recommendations to go do any of this. It's just, you know, that that would have been a generational buying opportunity. Um, And yeah, you don't want to be that. (laughs) You also don't want to be that that advisor, that person who's like, yo, let's just wait for, you know, the house of cards to fall so we, we can go. But that's that's pure market timing. You can't you can't do that. But I guess my more salient point here is if if you do lay down a strong financial foundation for yourself, um, you can get yourself through any market like event, whether it be two thousand eight or uh, Boxing Day last year in December when we saw uh, ultimately uh, the U.S. market almost almost become uh, a bear market, and, and it didn't. So. I think that that's almost a foolproof way to navigate these things and not have to worry about uh, another 2008. Yeah, I think I think it's important to see events like this happen and to take them in, you know, to some extent, although, you know, thinking that fearing too much that this is always going to happen is going to hold you back. Um, But then again, you know, with uh, some of the older generations that went through the Great Depression, um, famously, you know, they became very conservative with, with money and, uh, for many of them that served them quite well. Of course, then on the flip side, you hear about people, you know, storing cash under their, yeah. their bed or whatever, and you're <laughs> right. missing out on a lot, uh, right there. So there's, you know, two sides to the coin as always, but, um, I think it's important just to remember that, you know, uh, like Tony Soprano said, uh, no risks, no risk, <laughs> no reward. Um, other people have said that too. Um, <laughs> my friend, but, my friend uh, Corey Hobson, he'll say, uh, no pain, no premium. <laughs> That's good. I haven't heard that one. Um, but yeah, just don't think of stocks as a get rich quick scheme. Um, be in for the long term and realize you don't bat a thousand. And then it's much, much easier to deal with these drawdowns. I want to make sure we get to financial literacy. Douglas, you touched on that mm-hmm. uh, at the opening of the show. This is clearly a major stopping point for many people, not just millennials. What recommendations do you both have for improving this skill without maybe getting overwhelmed, say? Yeah. So, you know, one of my favorite lines I'll open with this is that there are few things in this world you can learn that you can relatively easily learn that have the ability to change your life for the better. Let me say that just one more time. There are few things in this world you can learn that can change your life. Personal finance and financial literacy is one of those things. Okay, um, you chip away at this. You start. You start with baby steps. You, you know, you gotta you gotta crawl before you can walk, before you can run. And the concepts we, we you know we often another kind of insider joke is personal finance, like 80% of it is knowing what your goals are and mastering cash flow. Like that, that's literally 80% of the entire thing. Like you can outsource investments, taxes, estate planning and the like. So you can begin by taking a look at what you spend, like getting intimate with your own data 
is not fun, it's time consuming, yet it's quite frankly one of the most important things you can do to gain control over your financial life. So go grab 12 months worth of credit card statements and bank account statements. Get organized, you can use Mint, you can use Tiller, you can use any FinTech tool that's white hot right now to help you pull that data electronically and categorize it. Someone will auto-categorize it. You can, do, you can have technology do a lot of this heavy lifting despite it being a pretty mundane task. And, 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 and there is, there is an um, upfront cost of your time to this, you know, but once you get in the habit, it goes very quickly and you, you're very efficient at it. But ultimately, you want to start categorizing these expenses. Like, like you should know, you should know what you're spending each month on broad categories, on going out, on dining, on rent. You, you should understand these things and put yourself in a position to be proactive, not reactive. And most people are reactive, Right. I'm going to go on this vacation or trip. I'm going to buy this thing and let the chips fall where they may. Oh, can't, you know, can't, can't do this next week. You know, worst case, can't pay rent. I mean, that's awful. That's awful. You want to be proactive. Okay, I'm going to take this vacation and this is what it's going to do to my goal. I'm going to have to push that out two months. Okay, is it worth it? I got to relax. I got to, you know, come back to work on Monday feeling super relaxed. This vacation must happen or it's just going to get worse. I'm okay with putting out the house goal, the cash reserve goal, by another couple months to go get what I need. That's proactive. That's making informed decisions. And all of that came out of really just understanding where your money is going. And you can more effectively budget and more effectively save and build the discipline that you're going to need in order to actually achieve your goals in the time frame that you would like. So start there. That's, that's a ton of work in it of itself, but it's easy. There's not a lot of, it's, you know, it's not rocket science, right? There's not a lot of complex math. There's tools that can help you. Do, you, can, you can do this on pen and paper, literally. I don't advise it. You know, go use, micro, you can do it in Microsoft Excel. But if you start here, you're going to get the vast majority of personal finance under your belt. And that's a beautiful thing. And it's going to separate you from everybody else and put you in a position to actually grow your wealth, achieve your goals, and reach financial independence someday. Sorry, it's boring. I'm sorry. Can't help that. I understood all that until Douglas started talking about pen and paper, and I got totally <laughs> lost at that point. I didn't even know. I what think the ancient doing. Sumerians once used these <laughs> tools. Not sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I mean, financial literacy is incredibly important. I think it should be taught as a core class in high school. Um, you right. know, if if or middle school even. I mean, yeah. if anybody, if anywhere still teaches home ec, I, I said they subbed that out. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, these are lifelong um, skills that uh, can dramatically change your life. I think it's a, a, a great way to put it. Um, and learning about budgeting, simple budgeting, um, establishing, you know, just some very rudimentary credit and keeping that under control. Um, and then compound interest, I yeah. think, uh, you never know what will resonate <clears throat> in a kid's uh, head or, or what they'll remember long term. And I, I think that some of these concepts, uh, compound interest especially, would hook some people and uh, would be um, sort of, yeah, anchor memories that could, you know, change their lives for the better. So, To not make this an entire episode where I <laughs> pile on to the financial uh, shortcomings of millennials... What are millennials doing well 
in terms of investing, in terms of savings? I would assume sort of the, the 401k has sort of been an automatic thing for them. Uh, what else are they doing well? I think we get a bad rap on a number of things. And, and the one thing I, I, I think we, you know, we get a bad rap for is just let's talk about that that core competency then of, of financial literacy. I actually think we're information seekers. I think out of any generation, the one that's searching for knowledge that has a, a, a thirst for it, I think that's us. You know, this is demonstrated by, you know, the FIRE movement, which, which is a bit extreme and a choice. So that's financial independence, retire early. I mean, I'm blown away by how much financial knowledge some of the people in that movement have. Might not agree with how they go about deploying that knowledge, but it, it does demonstrate that there is a lot of people out there looking for the knowledge to improve their financial lives. And I think it also goes back to, you know, the trauma that we saw from 2008. And unlike our grandparents or my grandparents who went through the Great Depression, they didn't have access to information and technology like we do. And, and just to kind of keep it current event relevant, you know, current event kind of relevancy here, you guys have been seeing kids who are now old enough to go get themselves vaccinated when their parents, you know, uh, didn't do that. What's that have to do with personal finance? Well, nothing, but it goes to show that uh, access to information and knowledge can go a long way in correcting things that necessarily uh, weren't, weren't done right previously. And that's what I'm seeing out of millennials. Hey, that wasn't good. How did mom and dad end up in that situation? Why am I so scared about this? What can I do? Oh, I have a computer. I have an iPhone in my hand. I'm going to go read a thing or two about that. We do that particularly well. We collaborate particularly well. We, we use the tools that have been given to us particularly well to change our outcomes, and we're going to continue to see that, and we're going to need that skill because the problems are becoming more difficult, and they're going to be passed to us at a societal level, and it's going to be up to us to, to solve them. And that obviously goes down many rabbit holes that today's podcast is not about. <laughs> Continuing on this theme that you touched on about, you know, technology and, and tools, Douglas, do you feel, what do you, do, I want to know your thoughts about robo-advisors. Do, do you yeah. think they're going to play an increasingly large role in, in asset management and, and financial planning in the years ahead? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I don't think they're going to put uh, financial planners and advisors out of business, but they do demonstrate a number of things. One, uh, more or less the commoditization of the asset management space, right? So now you can, in a low-cost, effective way, pretty much carry out buy-and-hold uh, investment strategies, um, and you can do it at scale. So I think they're actually going to be used by advisors. I use them myself. I think it does provide something that's critical, which is accessibility, making more people. It was said earlier, for, you know, you said for $50, you got started. Imagine if that 50 bucks was actually put in a robo and not a brokerage account, you know, where you had to buy the right stock. You could have just been participating in the market. So the fact that we're going to get more people just participating through Acorns, through um, Betterment, Wealthfront, you name it. It's like every financial service company from SoFi on down the line has a robo-advisor. Big banks are rolling out with them. It makes sense. It's, it's ultimately creating greater participation. But it's also doing something interesting in my profession, which is separating um, financial advice and planning 
where there's virtually unlimited value that you can provide somebody by going through their own individual financial situation and providing solutions to any problems or solutions that will help them get closer to their goals and dealing with their financial lives. And then the asset management piece. And this is part of a greater shift out of the good old brokerage days where a stockbroker called you up on the phone and said, I have a hot stock pick for you. You can go check that out in the movies like Boiler Room and Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> you know, if, you, if you're selling stocks over the phone at someone's dinner time post-2008, you know, you're going to get an earful or you're just going to hear click. It just doesn't work. And obviously, Robo's further kind of Hit, hit the head of that nail. So then the emphasis now becomes on financial planning professionals who uh, are well-trained in all aspects of one's financial life to create comprehensive planning and solutions. Well, that's where the value is going. So I wanted to share that with you. You know, that, that certainly gets into how to work with financial professionals and what's happening here. But I think you'll ultimately see new compensation models, right? So right now, the trend is assets under management. But that doesn't play well with folks millennials per se that don't have any assets that need to be managed but need financial advice. So flat fee service models, subscription models are going to emerge hybrids. You'll do asset management for the price of a robo, but you'll provide more value and charge maybe a flat fee for financial planning advice or whatever it is that the client's looking for. So robos, they're not going anywhere. If anything, it's funny to see that the larger robo-advisors are hiring financial advisors. So, you know, if there's any, we'll, we'll prove that they're not going to take out uh, advisors. Okay, well, they're hiring financial advisors. But I think hybrid solutions and the separation of like church and state investments and financial planning and advice is real. You're going to continue to see that evolve and give more accessibility uh, for people on the lower end, and I think some of the current models that exist today, like AUM structures, asset management, is still going to play well with your uh, wealthier clientele who are, are happy to um, give a percent or uh, you know under a percent at that point um, of their wealth for someone to either hold their hand or provide them with ideas and solve for some more complex things like the estate planning pieces and maybe the more nuanced type, uh, type of investment strategies um, that would justify paying something more than this now commoditized price. You both touched on specific tools that you like or that you've heard other people use. What are some of the most important or the most effective for millennials, maybe ones that, that you know they're already using or ones that you think they should be using? John, why don't you go first this time? Um, <clears throat> well, I think uh, Douglas mentioned uh, Mint. Um, I've used that before and it's a great way. And there are other tools like it um, that, you know, a great way to visualize and get a concept for um, what you're spending and um, what you're taking in each month and uh, in what categories. And yeah, even, you know, if you uh, do online banking, which many millennials do, uh, many banks will break that out for you as well um, now because they want to compete with some of these services. Um, so I think uh, tools like that are extremely helpful. Um, Robinhood for many people and tools like that can also be helpful. Um, tools uh, specifically that help you invest for, you know, free or very cheaply uh, in stocks and participate, you know, even buy fractional shares or, um, you know, I think that's important to gain experience in the market uh, for uh, a very low entry cost. Um, and yeah, I mean, 
uh, if somebody calls you up at uh, 7 p.m. on the phone and pitches the next Microsoft, I guess <laughs> be a little wary, but uh, you know you can educate yourself pretty well with a lot of these tools out there today. As we close up now, I'm going to ask you both one final tip that you can offer for millennials. I think uh, first, do no harm. You know, uh, do not uh, rack up debt if you can avoid it. Uh, I mean, obviously, a lot of times you can't, but especially high interest debt. Um, and after you're done doing no harm, you know, uh, try to pay off whatever debt you do accumulate because we can't always uh, go through life without accumulating some. Um, and then, you know, know your goals, uh, know your priorities. Um, and um, yeah, save and invest uh, early and often and work towards those goals um, with, you know, your risk tolerance in mind. And um, just as long as you're in it for the long term in terms of the stock market, just know that, you know, ups and downs happen. But uh, over the long term, um, there's no reason to uh, get too emotional and, and make a really bad decision, um, like selling out at the bottom, for example. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much it for me. So I think that covers the vast majority of it. You know, have a system for your goals, identify your goals, quantify your goals by time and value, and prioritize them. Remember that. Identify, quantify, prioritize. That's your goal system. When it comes to mastering cash flow, it's two sides to the coin. There's cash flow, looking at real numbers, what you actually spent your money on. And then there's your budget, what you hope you'd spend your money on. And it's reconciling these two concepts is the truth. And that's what's going to help you become a disciplined saver. That's 80% of personal finance right there, the goal system and the mastery of cash flow. And I'll add on a third. Pay no mind to what your friends, your neighbors, your brothers, your sisters, your family are doing. Focus on what it is you want for yourself. Empower yourself and get to work. Douglas, thank you so much for coming on the show to offer your expertise. Where can a listener find you on social media? Twitter is where I mostly hang out. That's Doug Bonaparte. You can also search for Bonafide Wealth online, or you can just type in Doug Bonaparte in Google, and I'm fairly confident you'll find your way to me. His book is The Millennial Money Fix. And if I'm not mistaken, Douglas, you recently added a member to the family. That's right. Daughter number two, Ruby, has made it to join her older sister, <laughs> Hazel, no more than three days ago. So it's fun times, oh, wow. in, fun times in the uh, Bonaparte household. And hey, I'm glad uh, we plan thoroughly to uh, save for that home because it looks like we're filling it up pretty quickly. But my wife, her, her words, not mine, shop's closed. <laughs> well, congratulations. And thank you for, you know, for taking the time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me again. And John, uh, thank you for joining as well. Uh, are there any social media handles you'd like to share? Uh, I too am on Twitter at, um, at DivineBizKid. And uh, I believe that's the same handle as uh, my StockTwits account, which is not quite as active, but uh, <laughs> you can follow me there. Great. And, and thanks we'll, for having me. Appreciate sure. it. We'll yeah. see you on the next uh, investing episode. Absolutely. And to our listeners, uh, thanks for tuning in. Check out our other episodes and go to money.usnews.com for advice, rankings, and tools on all things investing. If you have specific questions about investing you'd like answered on the show, please email us at wealthofknowledge@usnews.com, and we'll try to answer a few on future episodes. Finally, please subscribe, rate, and comment on our podcast 
so that we can help more people make smarter decisions with their finances. I'm Antonio Barbera. Thanks for listening to Wealth of Knowledge. See you next week.